Let's turn to Judges, please. Judges, chapter 1. We're about to enter into a book that's full of guts and glory. It's full of some very disgusting scenes. Uh, If you were to make a movie of this book, you would not show it in youth group. And it's it's a brutal book. And sometimes people wonder, why is this in the Bible? Because it's setting up the need for the Savior, of course, one. But what I want to do, too, is that this book will make you feel thankful that God does indeed make beautiful things out of dust and out of us. Some of us are a bit odd. (laughs) Um, I can relate, so don't worry if you are, too. You may feel like a misfit who's misunderstood or misplaced. You may feel like that piece in the puzzle where a lot of things kind of come together, but there's that one hole you leave because you can't find that odd-shaped puzzle piece, and somewhere toward the end it finally seems to make sense. You may feel like that. You may feel like you just don't have the normal way of living or normal talents or normal way of seeing or talking in the world. That's good. It's good because God is odd, too. If you think about it, God is incredibly odd. The way of God to do things and what the Bible describes as the wisdom of God is actually called foolishness to the world. The world has a status quo, a normal way of doing things, and it has this normalcy set up. And the people who are in charge are the ones who determine what is normal and what is not as a way of controlling the world. So if you don't fit in, that's okay because God doesn't really fit in this world either. He doesn't, he's too challenging, he's too odd. People don't know what box to put him in. And so if you feel odd, you're in good shape. We're going to see a lot of oddities in the book of Judges. Not only the way the people of God live and behave is going to be a bit odd. Um, Sometimes you're like, those are God's people? They don't look any different than the world. And yes, that's true. It's going to look like that at times. Other times we're going to see God raise up people who will deliver the people who've done odd things. And these people delivering them are going to deliver them in odd ways. Very odd ways. And we're going to see an odd eclect- uh, collection, an odd collection of people being raised up. Like, who's that? And why did you choose them? And that's not who you think would be elected for this rescue mission. So we're going to look at some oddities in the book of Joshua. And the first one, as we open the first five chapters, um, as the title suggests, we're going to meet a lefty and a lady. Both very odd selections, given the societal understanding of left-handed people and females of the time, which we will explain when we get there. Now, one of the things I want you guys to see as we enter this book is that Israel goes through this cycle, this behavioral cycle, all in the quest of normalcy. They live amongst the Canaanites who worship other gods and have weird ways of living, Um, child sacrifice and temple prostitution, just to name a few. Israel is going to, now they are the odd group coming in, who do things very differently, have a very different God, just one God for one, that's odd in itself. They keep a Sabbath, that's odd. They're not supposed to eat certain foods like shrimp and bacon, that's odd. And they're circumcised. And to the people of the land, this 
is odd. And they come in. And they're supposed to establish God's way of living in this land. But what happens instead? They begin to borrow the Canaanites' way of living instead. Because it's always easier to fit into normalcy than to be the odd self God has made us to be. It's always easier to seek normalcy. We're going to see Israel do that again and again in the book of Judges. So, I'm going to tell you that cycle in just a minute. Chapters 1 and 2 set up the book for us. Here's how it sets it up. Reading you a few verses. Chapter 1, verse 19 now, Israel's settled into the land. They're all over. Now they've got to kind of take care of some of the extra remaining Canaanites and establish Yahweh's way. And we read this in 119. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. 121. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. 1 verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheon and its villages. Verse 28. Um, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. <laughs> you get the point in chapter 1? We get the scene where, okay, Joshua is about to pass away. This is the end of his days. And the tribes are in their land, but they're not driving out the inhabitants they were told to drive out. They're not moving the idolatry and the temples. It's all staying put. Uh-oh, it's not a good sign to start. And then in chapter 2. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, Hey, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So, Chapter 2, verse 11. Let's see what Israel does. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals. Now, you're going to see this term Baal, B-A-A-L, often from this point on um, through Israel's history. Because Baal, it really, it means Lord. And this is the title given to the Canaanite over God, like the, the big God. They have many other gods, and they have all their kinds of weird stories behind how they came about. Um, the Baal's the chief, and Israel's going to have trouble with Baal. Why? Because it's normal in this land to worship Baal. Baal was the God of this land that they're living in. And to claim that Yahweh is the God made you a bit odd. So, in verse um, 2, verse 16... Again, this is setting up the book for us. It's giving us an oversight. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's keep reading. We're in 2.11. So they served Baal. Verse 12. And they abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They were slaves and they were set free. And yet they are abandoning this God with the great power to liberate them. Have, have, have we ever done that? 
They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. They sought what's normal. And they provoked Yahweh to anger. Verse 13. They abandoned Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, another uh, goddess of the land. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies whenever they marched out the hand of Yahweh was against them for harm as Yahweh had warned and as Yahweh had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress I highlighted that last sentence in red because I think it summarizes what happens when we abandon Yahweh in favor of the normalcy of culture. We are in terrible distress. So what happens? That's setting up the book. This is the, this is the setting of the book. Israel cannot stay faithful to Yahweh. They want to be normal. So, 2 verse 16. Then Yahweh raised up judges. Hence the name of our book, Judges. What are Judges. Um, they're not the people that wear curly white wigs like in England of the days of old. They're not people that bang hammers on their desk and say, order, order. Nor are they the people that say, you're right and you're wrong, go to jail. Um, they, they may have had to do some of that orderliness and, and law giving. But the judges were actually, uh, the, the Hebrew can also mean ruler. So they're, they're people that were raised up to be rulers over the people. And one scholar um, favors the translation warlords. The judges are warlords who are raised up to deliver Israel from their enemies at different periods. Now, warlords is a good title because all of them lead battles in one way or another against the Canaanites who oppress Israel. They deliver them through battle. Um, Let's keep going. So he raises up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to the judges. So they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of Yahweh, and they did not do so. So whenever the whenever Yahweh raised up judges, warlords, rulers for them, Yahweh was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning. So remember back up in 1 verse 15, they were in terrible distress. Now match that with this one. Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning. 19, whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. They persisted in normalcy. Hmm. Notice that it said they were more corrupt than their fathers. So what you're going to see in the book of Judges is that they're, uh, every time they turn away from Yahweh, they're turning away further than the last time. Well, if he saved me when I took one step away, let's see what he does when I take two steps away. Oh, he saved us last generation, so let's try three steps away. 
And this book is going to spiral downward. There's 12 judges in this book. 12. Six of whom are mentioned like in one verse. And the other six actually have a lengthy amount of time given to them. Um, these, these 12 judges get progressively worse in their leadership as you go through the book. Ending with Samson... Uh, I think I'm pretty sure he's the last. I should have checked that. I think Samson's the last, um, but he is one of the worst, and he dies miserably as a uh, an allegory of Israel itself. He dies blind, and Israel's become blind themselves to their whole way of life. So it gets worse and worse and worse. So now, if you will look at verse chapter three. We're going to move forward to the first judge who's raised up. Because this judge, although not much is said about him, um, it does show us this cycle I've been telling you about. Israel wanted normalcy, so they, they, they lived in this pattern, this cycle. You're going to see this cycle repeat through the book of Judges over and over. So, chapter 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel, 3, verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. They forgot Yahweh, their God, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. All right, step one in the cycle is that Israel sins. You see that in verse 7. They, they did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and they served the Baals, the other gods. And so the anger of Yahweh was kindled against them. Step one in the cycle, they sin. Now, sin uh, means to miss the mark. Yahweh had this way of life for them. They're missing the mark. Or another way to say it is to be off. You're off base. You're, you're not quite in rhythm or in step with Yahweh. They've lost the beat. They're marching orders. And so they're off. And now uh, things are getting bad. Okay. So then the second step is in the middle of verse 8. And the people of Israel served Kushan Rishathaim eight years. So now, first it's sin, second it's slavery or it's suffering. What happens after they sin is they go into this period as they continue to sin. Maybe at first it's not that bad, but after time as they serve other gods that can't liberate them from their sinful tendencies, they begin to suffer. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 15, they were in terrible distress. And perhaps you have seen this pattern in your own life. You get off and things tend to go downhill either quickly or gradually. And you can mark the beginning point of when you started to stray from God's way. So they sin, they suffer, and then step three is in verse nine. But when the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, Yahweh raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Sin, suffering, and third, salvation. God saves them. He rescues them. When we cry out, he does that. And so you may have noticed this pattern in your life quite a bit. Hey, I do this, and then these things happen, and then I cry out, and God is somehow good. He makes beautiful things out of dust and out of us. Um, but then you notice I didn't seem to learn that lesson so I did it again like a month later I sin I suffer but he saves me 
And then a year later, I sin. I saw, and you can, you can look over your life and notice this pattern. Just like in the book of Judges, Israel doesn't seem to get out of this cycle. It's almost like they're in that 40-year wandering, that death march, that terrible, no good, very ter- uh, bad 40-year death march in the wilderness. It's almost like they're living that within the promised land now. Just in this cycle that they can't get out of. He saved us! And then like, going through life, and then, oh, let's, let's go back to the normalcy. And then they sin, and then they suffer, and then he has to save them again. Why is it that we fall in these patterns? Why, why do these patterns happen to us? And why does it repeat? Why don't we ever learn? May I suggest to you it's because we need to learn a fourth step that gets you out of the cycle? We sin and suffer and then we're saved. And, and, and most of the time, I feel like a lot of Christians say, yay, he's good. And we go on life as if that's all that happened. Oh, I was saved from that thing that time. But I'm good now. I'm going to keep on moving on. I'm going to figure life out. I'm going to follow the wisdom of the world. I'm going to keep doing things my way. I don't prefer to change like that. It's a little hard. So we fall back in. We were missing the force. What happens after he saves us is we need to ask the question, so what now? And that's when you begin to actually grow in Christ and you begin to know that you're a follower of him is when you sin, you suffer, he saves you. And then you ask the ultimate question, I'm saved. So what now? Why was I saved? What is the purpose of this? Was it just so I don't go to hell? We hear that gospel all the time. Come to Jesus so you don't go to hell. Good first step. But that's not the ultimate purpose for your salvation. If that's all I was saved from is hell, I could live like hell and I'm fine. I'm going to suffer. He did not just do that. The question when he rescues us from our suffering and from our sin is, so now what do we do? What's the next step? What do we do next? There, um, you guys, I don't know how many of you guys have seen the really old Disney movie, Robin Hood, the animation. So it was Avalyn's very first movie, and that girl watched it all the time. I really learned to appreciate that. I saw it too as a kid. And seeing it again as an adult was really interesting. There's this one scene in which um, there's, this, there's this kid who um, wanders on into Prince John's castle. And Prince John's a cranky tyrant, right? He's a really bad leader. But in there, he meets Maid Marian, who is Robin Hood's soon-to-be wife, I guess. They're like lovers. And um, there's a scene where this, this young youth gets to pretend to be Robin Hood to rescue Maid Marian from the terrible Prince John. And um, so there's this little fake sword fight, and the, the youth wins and takes Maid Marian and rescues her. And she's like, oh, thank you, Robin Hood. You're so impetuous. You saved me. And then he takes her into the forest where they're supposed to be safe. And then he's, it's, it's cute because he, then he just he sits down. And he's like, okay, so now what do we do? <laughs> you were the damsel in distress. I rescued you. And now we're here and we're liberated. And it's like, okay, the climax is over, I guess. And in that scene, I see us so much. Jesus delivers us from the tyrant, from the suffering, and we go off with him. And then we're like, okay, is that, was that the best thing in life? Like, what's next? And we need to have a fourth step that has a game plan that says, 
I would say from that, that's obvious, but what am I saved for? What am I now delivered to do? Why has God chosen to rescue me? Why am I here? And what are the odd things about me that he wants to use or empower me through? Israel never gets to that step. That's why the book of Judges exists. So we're, we're still in verse 9 where we see that Yahweh raises up a deliverer for them. So the first one is right here. His name is Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of Yahweh was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and Yahweh gave Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Kushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. By the way, Kushan Rishathaim, that long name, it's a king, right? It's actually his title, it's his nickname, and it means Kushan the doubly wicked. <laughs> so the, the name, of course, would precede, your reputation precedes you, right? So Israel would quiver, oh my gosh, the doubly wicked is coming. Kushan the doubly wicked. I just thought that was great. And yet Yahweh delivers them even from the doubly wicked. So now we get to the more interesting judges, Ehud. You guys ready? This one's good. We're going to meet the lefty. Ehud in verse 12, 3.12. This story is... And just, just warning you in advance, Judges does not spare you some gruesome details. And the people of Israel, so here's the cycle again, right? The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And Yahweh strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So Eglon grabs other nations, defeats them, gets them to serve him, and then he takes over Israel. And Israel's now suffering under his tyrant leadership for 18 years, which often meant that they take your crops and your grains and a lot of money so that you would be barely living so you could not revolt against the king and he would be getting rich off of your expense. That's what it means to suffer under another king. And so you'd pay tribute. You would, he would have to give a sum often to the king and you would, you would deliver it to him. And so this is where we see the plot thicken. Verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh and Yahweh raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, that's not just a nice detail. You know, he had brown hair. That would be a nice detail. Um, but you notice how the Bible never gives you those details. Like, what did this person look like? How tall was he? The only time it tells you things like that is when it's really, really important to pay attention to the, to the story. Like, for example, Zacchaeus. It's one of the few times we're told how tall somebody is, right? Or Goliath. He's a really tall giant. Zacchaeus is a really short person. These were pertinent to the story. Now... That Ehud was a left-handed man is incredibly important to this story. And it's incredibly odd. Today, we are not as superstitious. We understand how biology works. We have scientific understanding for some things. Some things are maybe a little wacko too. But we understand that left-handed people are not cursed by the gods. Some people are just born with a stronger left side than the right side. And we now understand too that it's different sides of the brain that are operating left-handed, right-handed people. 
Um, but back then, a left-handed person was odd, and he was therefore not favored by the gods, the things that ruled the world. So this is a strange person. Ehud, in other words, was seen as lesser than normal people. One other way you can translate left-handed is he was crippled in his right hand. That's one of the ways you could read that in Hebrew. So it's possible that his right hand was crippled and that made him left-handed. Or it's just possible he was simply a left-handed person. Either way, a crippled would have been seen as odd. And often in ancient societies, crippled children were executed. They were done away with. It was like a foreign form of abortion. Oh, it's going to be crippled. Let's not have this baby live. Or they were hidden. So whether he's crippled or left-handed, the point is that Ehud is not normal. He's not who you'd expect to be a great leader. Left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute through Ehud to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, roughly 18 inches. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Okay, this is really good. So Ehud is chosen to bring the tribute, the the major tax to this king Eglon. So he gets to go inside of enemy lines. And Ehud's not going to be the, he's not the kind of guy that says, all right, let's just keep things normal here. He wants things to change. So he begins to think, how can God use my odd life to bring about change here? Well, I'm a left-handed man. Maybe I'm a crippled in my right hand. Nobody who's a somebody fights with their left hand. Nobody would suspect me to be a violent person. Why don't I make a sword and strap it to my right thigh? Because that's where your left hand would draw from. And I'm going to hide it under my clothes. And I'm going to take a gamble, Ehud's thinking, that nobody is going to suspect a left-handed person carrying a weapon on their right thigh. They're going to look on the left thigh. You're clear to go. So Ehud's going to take a dare. He's going to do this. He straps the weapon to his right thigh in verse 17. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Okay, another detail. Um, I love the name too, by the way, Eglon. Like you just can't, just imagine, he's just like an egg sitting there on his throne. I just kind (laughs) of, someone change a channel for me, I can't get up. That's Eglon. Now, Ehud um, brings a tribute. And you can imagine, okay, if you are about to do what you're going to do, you want to show Eglon that Israel is completely and thoroughly faithful to this king. So you're bringing the tribute, and you're probably piling it on more than he asked because you're thinking, we're never actually going to give this to him anyways. So let's butter him up a little bit. He seems to like delicacies, so let's put a lot of rich food here. Let's put a lot of nice things for him. Let's appeal to his appetite to get him to welcome me as more than just a tributary. So Ehud comes in with the tribute. Oh, wonderful, Eglon. You look nice today. Have you been exercising? And Eglon is flattered with this presentation. Oh, surely Ehud is a, is a faithful servant to me. And of course, um, everyone's so wowed by Ehud coming in with this tribute. I mean, of course, we're imagining a little bit here, right? They're wowed by Ehud coming in with this tributary. There's a little bit of... Oh, he's loyal. Like, no revolutionary gives all this money or this tribute. So so there's a little quick pat on the left leg. Oh, you're good. Go through. And Ehud's now in, right? Well, verse 
19. No, 18. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded, Silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence. Okay, a little, the wording there is just really um, shortened, so it's confusing a bit. What happens is they leave the great show by Eglon, and Eglon gets to look at it and have pleasant thoughts about this group that just came in and paid me all this homage and, and flattered me and left me all these things and left. And now, so while Ehud and his um, tribute, the people, his servants giving the tributary go off, he's going with them, and at Gilgal, there's apparently a temple there, right? It says the idols of Gilgal. He there stops and says, guys, keep going. I'm going to go back. And he turns around. Now, why does he do this? Why does Ehud leave the palace, go to the idols at Gilgal, and then return? He's feigning devotion to Eglon's gods. And he's coming back with the, with the presumption that, hey, I was just walking by your guys' temple, and the gods just struck me with a vision. That's what he's saying. I have a secret message for you. I just came from the idols. And that's why Eglon thinks, oh, this is so deep. I want the servants out so that no one catches wind of what I'm about to hear. And so in verse 20, And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat with great effort, insert. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. It's a good meeting, guys. See ya. And shut the doors behind him. Okay. Um, Why is nobody suspicious? Well, after this piercing and Eglon dies, it says that the dung came out, so the innards are now spilled out everywhere, right? Which would have produced the smell of having a really bad bowel movement. Now, he's in the cool chamber, it says, which is where he would have, in a private area where the wind blows he would have relieved himself so no one's actually suspecting anything at this point notice verse 24 when he had gone the servants came and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked they thought surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber the smell confirms it and they waited till they were embarrassed but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber they took the key and opened them And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. And so Ehud escapes, and he rallies 10,000 troops, and they are able to attack um, Eglon's army, and they liberate Israel. And they have security and rest for 80 years. That's good. So you guys met the lefty. He's an odd sort. He's an oddity in the world. Yet God uses this odd person with this deformity. Being left-handed alone would have been considered a deformity. So sorry if you're left-handed. We we now know you're not really that odd. But um, my wife's left-handed, so you know. You know how much I love lefties. 
she would have been the deliverer of us, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so hey, here's an odd, God uses this oddity to save Israel. In verse 31, we have Shamgar. Um, he's a judge who's one of the minor judges I've mentioned. He's just mentioned in one verse, you know, kill 600 Philistines with an ox goad. <laughs> That's fantastic. Do you know what an ox goad is? It's a long pole with a point on the end so that you would just poke the oxen while you're doing threshing your harvest, your, your farm, so that they keep moving. That's what an ox goad is. It wasn't really meant to be a durable weapon. It was meant, it's meant to poke an ox that wasn't really going to fight you back. Um, with an ox goad, he, he, he takes down 600 Philistines. Again, this is God using really odd things to look good. And now chapter 4, we're going to meet the lady. There's actually two ladies in this story. And this is really odd. So before we go into it, I, I need to say, um, like with left-handed people, um, ancient societies, which were known as patristic, uh, meaning the patriot, the, uh, the, the father figure was the head of the family and all of society um, because they were stronger and actually what we know from some ancient writings, um, ancient societies had actually a very negative view of women. Um, the Greeks believed that women were failed males in the womb of their mother. That if the fetus had developed properly, it would have been a boy. Uh, that's just some of the mentality. So, um, of course, now we're doing a lot better with recognizing that there's actually nothing worse about women than men. Um, but back then, it would have been incredibly odd for a woman to have any power whatsoever over a male. And yet we're going to see that happen in this passage. Clearly, God wasn't bound to the superstitions of society, what was considered normal. So chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh after Ehud died. Cycle begins again. And Yahweh sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of the army was Sisera, who lived in that place. And in verse 3, the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Okay, Jabin's the king, Sisera is his general. Now, Deborah, in verse 4, a prophetess... The wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at that time. She is one of the 12 judges, a woman. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramach and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment, for rulership, for help. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather from men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him over into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. 
And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now again, we may not be as embarrassed today if that was to be the case, that a woman got more credit than you for a project at work or something or school. But back then, this would have been completely shameful for the men that a woman who was not supposed to be in this role at all is getting glory instead of the man. This is an oddity for sure, and yet God is not afraid to use odd things. So um, they go to war. And in verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900, and all the men who were with him, from Haresheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which Yahweh has given Sisera into your hand. Does not Yahweh go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and Yahweh routed Sisera and all his chariots and his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to um, the place where Sisera is from, Harasheth, Hegoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Wow. It happened. They were scared to do this. But the prophetess, the woman, inspires the man to say, you can do it. And Barak says, all right, I can do it. Come with me. And they, she comes with him, and he wins. Now, um, it says that Sisera got down from his chariot. How does God like do this? How does, he, how does he use this odd combination of a prophetess and this, this, this Barak, who had to be summoned by the prophetess, to overcome 900 chariots? Well, if you look at chapter 5... Verse 4, uh, you, we get a hint. This is a song that they sing after the victory. And 5 verse 4 says this. Yahweh, when you went out from Seir and you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water and the mountains quaked before Yahweh. So we know that it rained quite a bit. And what would have happened is in that rain, the river, Kishon, would have overflowed and possibly a flash flood would have come down out of the, um, off Mount Tabor and filled Kishon and there the chariots were and they were caught in the flash flood and they had abandoned their chariots and now they're running and now Israel goes after them and they win the battle. So Yahweh delivers by the use of weather. But what happens to Sisera, the general? What happens to him? Verse 17 This is where the second woman comes into play. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Now, the Kenites were Bedouins. They would wander around in tents. And they apparently were in a good relationship with Israel's oppressors. So Sisera flees to these tents, and he thinks he's going to be safe. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. Basically, it's like the equivalent to, Oh, you need a rest? Let me give you Benadryl. So she's going to knock him out with his milk. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, 
And if anyone comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. You'll be laying fast asleep in another way. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, with the tent peg in his temple. Nailed him. Get it. (laughs) But of course, that there is what the prophetess Deborah had said. A woman would get the glory for this battle. Jael is the one who conquered Sisera. Oddities indeed. God uses a left-handed person and he uses a lady, two ladies in this story, to bring about the salvation of Israel. Now, this is all while Israel seeks not to be odd but to be normal and to do the thing that the people of the land did. And then almost as if to say, Israel, you're not getting the picture. Let me use odd people to deliver you. But it also reminds me, and you will want to turn to 1 Corinthians. It also reminds me of a few passages in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament, after the Gospels, and right after Romans. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And we see this in Judges, don't we? He's using odd things. Left-handed person, you're not good for anything. A lady, go home and make food. He used these people to do something miraculous to save Israel. That's odd. And that's God getting glory out of something that humans, would, normal society, would have said, they can't do anything. Look more. There's a lot of this in Corinthians. Look at Corinthians 1, verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So the world has its wisdom, and we call that normal. We call that the status quo. We call it conventional culture, the normal way a society does things. And Paul is saying, hey, Corinthians, stop following the way of Corinth around you. It's just like the Israelites and judges. And wake up to the fact that God calls the so-called wisdom of this world foolishness. And his way, though it be odd, is the way of wisdom. Verse 25, Corinthians 1.25. For the foolishness of God, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And then we read, but God chose the foolish things to shame the wise and so forth. In chapter 3, verse 18, 318, let no one deceive himself, if, which means you're easily deceived here. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. He works in odd ways. And then 4 verse 10. Chapter 4 verse 10. Paul writes about him and the other apostles. By the way, how many apostles were there? <laughs> All right, it's, uh, 12 is the traditional number given to the apostles. How many judges are there? 12, right? So there's some... There's some you know, quasi-parallels here with the New Testament. And Paul's going to talk on behalf of the apostles, and he's going to say this to them. Um, We, that's the we. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, Corinthians, are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted with ho- and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we revile back? Oh, no, 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 that's way too normal. When reviled, we bless. Oh, that's odd. When persecuted, we give up? No, that would be too normal. When persecuted, we endure. That's odd. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So that's how Paul says the leadership of Christianity should look. That's how Jesus looked. Jesus came not in the mighty palaces of Rome to deliver with armies and give people gold and wealth. He came to the backwaters of the Roman Empire, the stinky place in Israel in which people were generally sent from Rome to rule that place who were in trouble with the emperor. That's why Pontius Pilate is there. He was on watch. That's why Herod was there. They're, they're, they're not as trustworthy, so they're put over there. Um, Jesus is a peasant. He's not even in the religious elite. He is the scum of the empire. They could care less about the livelihoods over there. All the re- only reason they cared about the land Jesus lived in was because it was good for making wine. It's the only reason they cared. And then Jesus is not only put to death, but he's crucified, which was the death reserved for slaves who were not citizens of the elite Roman Empire. A death that was meant not to be buried, that was an exception, um, but to just be left in a pit for the natural causes to take care of you. That's an odd way for God to come and save the world. And then he chooses, again, 12 people to follow him, to promote his message. And the people he chooses are failures. They're fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot. There's, there's, a, there's a few, but we, we know the core ones, the, the big ones, were fishermen. What, what does that mean? It does not mean they grew up and said, I love the lake and I love fish. I want to be a fisherman, so I went to college to study to become a fisherman. That's not how that world worked. They were fishermen because they failed at everything else. 
All little boys grew up learning the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and were expected to memorize it and to be able to answer a series of questions in response to their instructor, their rabbi. And if they were good enough, they would move on and begin to memorize more of the Old Testament. But if they were not good enough, if they were not part of the elite of their class, the rabbi would say, I don't think you have what it takes. Go and learn your dad's trade. Which, in other words, meant go and learn what your dad did because he wasn't good enough for this either so these disciples are fishermen because they were not good enough to learn the scriptures and jesus not he does not go and start his own school well he does but out of well he does not go and steal students from other rabbis and say i want the brightest and the best give them to me he goes to the fishermen who are the foolishness of the world the scum of the world the failures of the world and he calls them and he pours into them because he believes that the father is going to work through the odd things of the world and so they become the 12 judges if you will of the new testament that's how our god works He uses the odd things to put to shame what is normal. Yet we don't want to rock the boat, so we choose normalcy. Christianity even, we can sometimes become so just lukewarm in society. We just want to kind of be accepted. We want people to see our beliefs as reasonable. We want people to admire our morals. and we, We just want some space and respect. And sometimes that makes us a little dull. Just got to blend in. We just got to be with the popular version of that or this. Or be liked. The, 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 the thing here is that you have Ehud who took a great risk to attack Eglon in his own palace. Because Ehud knew what it was like to live outside of normalcy. And therefore, he wasn't content with the normal society. Oh, let's just keep serving the other kings and giving tribute. It's safe, at least. At least we're alive. He said, you know what? I already know what it's like to live outside of normal. What do I have to lose? Same thing with Deborah. What do I have to lose? Yet, see, because we want to be seen as normal, we want to maintain the church and Christianity as normal. We're afraid of risk. We're afraid of sticking out. We're afraid of being different than conventional culture. Because people may not believe. They may not like us. I don't know if that's what God would want. I don't know if that is letting him use the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. So as I look at a passage like this, where God uses a lefty and a lady... I can't help but think that one of the applications we can draw from this is to keep the gospel odd. Keep the gospel odd. Why do I say that? Well, God is odd. First of all, we, 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 we talk about people being odd because it comes from math, right? It comes from numbers. Think about this. Even numbers match up evenly. Right? I can take four, it's an even number, and I can divide it evenly, two and two. Everything's in balance. The world is stable. If I throw a fifth one in there, then I have two and two, and I have this odd number. Like, what do I do with this one? Do I put it with the two here and now make three and two? Now it's off balance, I'm going to rock the boat. It's not very fun. And so the world likes things to be even and manageable, but God, God starts the world, first of all, with his pre-existent self called the Trinity. It's three. 
It's not just one, it's not two, it's three. It's a very odd number. And then from this trinity, he creates the world, which he did in how many days? Seven. He starts the entire thing with odd numbers. God is just an odd God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has even numbers too, like Ten Commandments and so forth, and twelve disciples and such. But he starts everything with an odd number. Which you say, like, look, God has this way of doing things where not everything has to line up with neatly cut, systematic theology. And yet, yet we want to make the gospel even. We want to argue with atheists on their grounds, with their logic, with their reasoning. And Paul says, look, the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. Because God is using odd things. He works through oddities. And yet we want to look just like the respectable academia and say, look, we are just as smart as you. Our philosophy is even better than yours. And we try to out-argue and out-reason in a worldly medium. And yet we continue, we, we, the, the, the church is trying so hard to make the gospel look cool and even. And I see the Bible saying, yeah, but it's odd. It's not always going to be applauded by these groups of people or that movement or that party. Sometimes it's just going to be a head scratcher. And we wonder why the church is getting so ineffective. We're just like everybody else. And yeah, you see the discussion. Buddhism has this way of living and Christianity is this way of living. Is it even comparable? Should it even be comparable? Oh, there's, there's Christianity's view of humanity, and then there's humanism's view of humanity. Why is it even in the same discussion? Christianity ought to be odd. Keep the gospel odd. There's a poet who says, um, he, has this, he has a poem about the math of God, and at the end, he says, um, an arithmetic to confound the devil. If we let the gospel be odd and let God do what he does and work through the odd things of the world, it will confound the devil. It will confound the devil. Think of Jesus himself. He's like Ehud. He goes into enemy territory. He goes into the enemy's throne and pretends like he's there at the enemy's disposal. And then the enemy gets stabbed and had no idea it was coming. Jesus gave himself to death, Satan's weapon. He handed himself over, and Satan was so greedy he could not see that this would be his own end. Eglon could not see that welcoming Ehud into his subjection would be his own end. That's odd. Jesus was born, as we're going to see one of the judges, Jephthah, he was born out of wedlock. Now, we know that there was the virgin birth, But not everybody on the outside understood, oh, it's a virgin birth. He's the son of God. No, everybody looked at Mary and Jesus and said, you were born out of wedlock. In fact, John 8 has the Pharisees accusing him of being born out of wedlock. Jesus went around with the shame, like Jephthah, we're going to see later. He went around with the shame of, I am odd. I am not accepted. My existence is not the way the world accepts me. And yet God brings salvation through that oddity. And here we are. We persist in trying to divide an odd gospel evenly. We want to make something that's seven turn out into something you can divide into three and three. And we're falling short. We're falling short. And so my suggestion is that we own up to the fact that maybe we are odd and let God work through that. Rather than trying to change it to look like everyone else who are just a better version. 
What if instead of trying to argue people's minds into belief, we lived experientially like Jesus? What if we were generous like Jesus? What if we forgave like Jesus? What if we served like Jesus? What if we outshowed the world foolishness, doing things Jesus would do? And every time you propose a literal application of Jesus into someone's situation, say, oh, but that's not how the world works. Right. Right. God works through oddities. And what if we actually outlived the world in Jesus' likeness rather than out-argued the world to say, see, God exists. We're not that crazy. Look, people may or may not believe our arguments, but let's not try to do it like the world. Let's try to show them something that's undeniable. Let's try to show them something that they would see a community of people so loving each other and so preferring one another over themselves and so sharing their stuff and so helping one another's needs and praying with each other and eating even outside of church, eating together and meeting together and praying for one another and not amassing possessions for themselves like everybody else, but sharing those things, just living so differently than culture that everyone says, I don't know about their beliefs, but I want to belong to that. And then in belonging... Maybe we learn to believe. Maybe they learn to see the gospel because they start to understand that the world doesn't add up the way science has told us it does. Maybe, maybe life is more than the sum of its parts. And maybe that's the odd thing that God wants us to live and do. So let's keep the gospel odd. Let's not try to normalize it and therefore make idols within the church the worship team is going to come up because now we have this awesome opportunity to reflect upon God's word and to pray in what it's been speaking to us and there's two there's two sides of the coin here you might feel like you're a misfit and you're odd good news you're just the lefty and the lady that God uses Or you might realize, man, I'm guilty of trying to normalize the gospel in our society. Well, let's let's return to the foolishness of God that puts to shame the wisdom of the world. And let's realize, you know what? I don't have to make this cool. I just have to live it.